0: Amen and amen. Well, this evening, we begin a new series, Walking Together, if you will, through the book of Joshua. Uh, This book bears the name of the one who wrote it. By the way, if you turn to the very first chapter of of, uh, Joshua, this book, as I was saying, bears the name of the one who wrote it. The internal evidence bears witness to that particular fact. His name, according to Hosea, uh, to Numbers 13, was Hosea. He is the son of Nun. Joshua changed his name to Joshua. And so Hosea means salvation. Joshua means the Lord save or God saves. And so it seems that he was born, Nun, been a person of faith. And while they were in slavery, he was named salvation. And then Joshua changes, I mean, Moses changes his name, rather, to Joshua, and that seems to be under the inspiration of God to point to Jesus Christ. For you see, his name is the same exact name as Jesus Christ. Regarding the themes we'll come across in this book, there are several. However, the one that shapes and interacts with everything else that comes along is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham who then reiterated it to Isaac, and then Jacob. That promise was that Abraham and his descendants, God's people, would be provided with the land of Canaan, that which would come to be known to us as the promised land. Supporting that assertion of the prominence of that theme, we note that the word land is found 87 times in this book. And that's because it is the record of Israel's entering, conquering, and claiming that which God, who cannot lie, had promised to provide to his people. We're also going to hear in detail of the conquest of the land, the inheritance of the written law of God, which at that time, this is important, would have been Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or Pentateuch, as it is called. We're going to witness the significant role those books had throughout the occupation, We'll see this among other places in chapter 1, in our very first text here, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 32, and chapter 24, over and over and over again. There's going to be a return in the book to remind us of God's revelation and the centrality of his word. We are called to live in his word. Another great theme is the holiness of God in, in judging the sin of the Canaanites. There's a great deal of biblical and extra biblical evidence which communicates the extent of the wicked practices of the occupants of Canaan. It is going to be said that God will spit them out basically. But here's where we'll be dealing with the frequently asked questions, questions like how can God annihilate folks like this? How can he give orders to get rid of everyone including innocent children, how can he cause such great suffering? How can he have those people displaced out of the land that was theirs? Now, I'm not going to deal with this particular issue this evening, but it will surely be dealt with in the weeks to come. The last thing I'd say by way of general introduction is this. There are two common practices prevalent in some corners of Christendom that we uh, should and will avoid as we journey through this book together. First, there is the practice of rightly categorizing this book as history, but then wrongly treating it as only history. There is no application under this discipline to the New Testament Christian. That position is sorely wrong and one will surely avoid. The second practice that we should and will avoid is believing that the book of Joshua communicates to us that the promised land is heaven. Commenting on this, Warren Wiersbe wrote the following, Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Canaan is our inheritance, that which is given to every Christian who claims Christ by faith. We move from slavery, bondage, and brokenness to recovery and victory in Christ. It's unfortunate that some of our Christian songs have equated Israel's crossing the Jordan with the believers dying and going to heaven because this mistake brings confusion when you start interpreting the book of Joshua. Wiersbe goes on to list some songs that Contribute to that idea. And I I don't want to mention those songs because some of them are in here. (laughs) He then goes on to say the events recorded in the book of Joshua have to do with the life of God's people and not their death. Listen to this. The book of Joshua records battles, defeats, sins, and failures, none of which will take place in heaven. Good point. This book illustrates, he says, how believers today can say goodbye to the old life and enter into the rich inheritance in Jesus Christ. It explains how we can meet our enemies and defeat them and how to claim for ourselves all that we have in Jesus Christ, and he quotes Ephesians 1, 3. Here we need to recognize that our enemy, as he is speaking here, is the world, the flesh, and the devil, we ourselves, the old man, is our enemy. So I would submit to you, that what Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians explains doctrinally, the book of Joshua illustrates practically, and we'll see that. It shows us how to claim our rest in Christ. And that's also a major theme in the book of Hebrews, something that as we travel through Scripture, will connect to what we're dealing with here, led by the promptings, again, of this book. So, brothers and sisters, hear me. There are many who continue to live now who continue to live under the penalty of sin, trapped in the power of sin, and are overwhelmed by the presence of sin. So it is my hope that as we walk through this book of Joshua together, it would help us to understand how we, by faith, can live in the light of the promises that have been set before us, promises that include our resting in our Lord on this side of heaven, irrespective of our circumstances. Ultimately, together, we will discover that the secret to Joshua's victory was not his skill with the sword, but his faith in God, his submission to the Word of God and to the God of the Word. Now, with those introductory words in hand, let us now turn to a direct address of the passage we have before us this evening. Verses 1 through 9, the Word of God. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we readily come before you this evening admitting our weaknesses, our frailties that we do operate in fear sometimes, that we do operate in concern uh, without being considerate of your word in those times. Father, we pray that you, even now through your word, would encourage us forward as we look to live our lives in and through Christ, for and to, towards your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, I'm going to try to comment on these And this passage under three headings, God's reiteration of a promise, God's reiteration of his presence, and God's reiteration of his means. But before I go down the road uh, of dealing with those headings, I'd like to ask a series of questions, and I believe that these questions would hit some of us in in various ways and and means and and manners. So here are the questions, do you ever feel inadequate? And the things you believe you've been called to do. Do you ever doubt your God-given ability? Are you afraid to witness to others? Making disciples is not something that you feel that you should be doing or you're scared of doing. Do you feel like, hey man, my, my parents was some great parents raising me in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. But now I, I, I feel like I'm not doing such a great job. I, I feel that I can't do What I'm supposed to do. Do you feel like that? Do you feel that watching others, you're watching other Christians live out their Christian walk in such a manner that it seems that they're hitting it out the park and and you are here struggling with besetting sins and you feel like God is calling you to something but you're hesitant or if you engage, you feel like you're failing. Do you feel those type of ways? Do you? Are you wrestling with sin and feel like you can't win? If you're wrestling with any one of those questions and so much more, I I want you to think about what you're seeing here right off the top in this particular text. Here is Joshua being commissioned on the heels of Moses. Now we're not talking about some fellow who seemed, Moses that is, to be highly gifted, who read the scriptures and seemed to have a good grasp of it. Nah, not Moses. This is the man of whom it was said he spoke to God face to face. The man whom God used mightily to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt, who after God used his own fingers, God used his own fingers to produce the tablets with the Ten Commandments, was in direct receipt of the same. In other words, Joshua was coming behind someone who seemed to be larger than life and if you don't think Moses was on Joshua's mind central to his thinking and his commissioning then note that Moses's name is mentioned six times in this opening book where he's writing in this passage in this book that uses repetition for emphasis his name is mentioned six times and if if what was behind Joshua in terms of looking at what Moses accomplished and what Moses had to deal with and everything else that was behind him that he knew and understood concerning the task, if that was something, think about what was before him. Here I'm reminded of Numbers 13 where Joshua was included in the 12 spies who Moses sent out to check out Canaan. If you remember 10 of the spies excluding Joshua and Caleb, came back with a negative report, urging the people not to go forth. not no, no. the point that I'm making here is those guys came back with a negative report. Caleb and Joshua came back positively. But the one thing that we can agree on is that Caleb and Joshua agreed with the 10, the other 10, concerning what it is that they saw. The people in the land were strong and the cities were fortified and large, which pointed to the existence of a very highly skilled opposition. They also saw descendants of gigantic men and multiple different tribes throughout the land. So conquering that land was a monumental task, to say the least. They understood that. That's what was in front of him. Now, if your response to what I just said is, "Uh, Yeah, Dean. But may I remind you that in spite of all that, Joshua was not backing down. He said, and this I quote, let us go up and occupy it, for we are well able to occupy it. If that's your position you're taking, then my response to you is to say, it's one thing, brothers and sisters, to declare an action and even start off doing it. It's a whole nother ball game when you're actually engaged in the situation. The apostle Peter said, oh, Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. I got your back. I'm here all the time. And then before the rooster crowed, he was out. Right? Peter told Jesus, but bid me come walk to you on the water. He had the boldness and the courage Peter did. But then the reality of the moment hit. He faltered. In both cases, Jesus had to come to his rescue, first through prayer, and second through a physical hand up. Now, may I remind you that this same is the same man, Peter, you heard Josh reading about how Peter spoke boldly in Acts 3. And this is the same man who rose up on the day of Pentecost and spoke boldly, and tons of folk came to to faith through his work then. But then you flip the pages forward and you get to the book of Galatians and we find Paul calling him out for shrinking back under the face of scrutiny. So God knows what we in our frailty, no matter how bold we might seem, no matter how equipped we might think we are, no matter any of that thing, God knows exactly what we need and how we need it. And so God knows in our frailties what we need to accomplish, what he purposes for us. And that's what we see here as he speaks to Joshua. Heavenly encouragement. And the way he does that is by the three points that I put out to you. First, there's a reiteration of God's promise. Joshua, I can imagine. God saying to Joshua as an extension of that which rightly aligns with this text. Joshua, people might change. But my purposes don't. On a macro level, I purpose that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And at a more micro level, as it pertains to this promise, I told Moses what I told Abraham in Genesis twelve seven: To your offspring, I will give this land. Joshua, I am the same God. Yesterday, today, and forever. All my promises are yes and amen. So know this. That which I said to Moses is nothing more than a reiteration of what I said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and it will, therefore, come to pass. Yes, the territory that I showed and promised to Abraham, showed and promised to Moses, and now to you is great. Yes, the people are great. Yes, the people are mighty, but I am inconceivably greater. I am God, and able, therefore, to bring what I have purposed to complete fruition. So what we see here is God strengthening Joshua's resolve by causing Joshua to reflect on the veracity of his promises and his faithfulness in fulfilling them. Joshua would remember that he was a slave in Egypt. Joshua was a firstborn son. So by God's dictate, he could have died. But because he was protected by the blood and by God's dictate, His very life was saved. Time and time again, Joshua saw God promise and say that he would bring things to pass, and they came to pass. So now he is reminding him, reminding him, here's what I promised. Here's what I said. Reflect on that. Reflect on my character and be therefore strengthened. And brothers and sisters, that is the same thing that we are to do. We are supposed to reflect on God's promises. There's nothing that God has ever promised in his word that has not come to pass. And so we can rely on this God. Now there's something else Joshua desperately needed. And no matter how skilled he might have been, he could not do without. And that's God's presence, our second heading. God's reiteration of his presence as Moses' assistant. Joshua would have witnessed all kinds of incredible and miraculous stuff, but we must also acknowledge that he would have witnessed some not-so-good stuff, like Moses almost dying because he didn't circumcise his child, like Moses' own brother and sister rising up against him in Numbers 12, the Korahite rebellion. The constant frustration with people whose agenda was about themselves and not about God. His own sin nature and tendencies. We could go on and on. I imagine you watch someone deal with the woes of life like he did. And you're bound to get weary just thinking about it. Sometimes you watch people that are taking care of stuff. You know, some of you you, you, uh, have a wife and you have five children you watch mom taking care of all those children, doing all those kind of things, and you get tired just watching. Well you need, you need to help too, but you know what I'm saying, right? So I imagine that in the midst of that, thinking about those things, he again needed to be encouraged because he had the knowledge of all those things occurring around him. So I imagine anyone who's commissioned and was privy to the experience, And the knowledge of what those things would feel the weight of those memories, which then would have the effect of chipping away at their resolve. So God knew that about Joshua. He knows that about you. He knows that he's called you to do certain things. And he knows that your resolve is being chipped away by the battles in this life, by the struggles, by the things that you're dealing with. He knows that. And so here he comes to Joshua. In verse 5, and he tells him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua, you can't do it by yourself, and you're not expected to do it by yourself. I am God, and I will be there with you every step of the way. In verse 9, we hear, have I not commanded you? Think about it, Joshua. Who is the one that's commanding you? Who is the one that's talking to you right now? It is I, God. It is I who spoke the very world into existence by the word of my power. So have I not commanded you? Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And why? What is, what is the reason that's given why you should not be afraid in the midst of anything that you're dealing with? This morning, Pastor Caleb talked about, you know, people coming against you and rejecting you and everything else. Why should you not be afraid to witness for Christ? Why should you not be afraid to go and make disciples of all nations? Why should you not be afraid to represent Christ through the love of Christ in every sphere of influence that you're in? Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Brothers and sisters, this is no different than Jesus saying to us, knowing our frailties, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and fight the battle against your flesh, the world, and the devil. And behold, in the midst of all that, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am the one that's sanctifying you. I am the one that is using you for my glory. That which I have purposed in your life will come to pass. In the midst of hardships, know that I'm there. In the midst of prosperous times, know that it is I who is doing that to use you and the resources that you have to extend the fame of my name. Know that in all things, I am with you, brothers and sisters." And hearing those words from God, from our good shepherd, we're strengthened in our inner being and thus reply. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then you can walk in the confidence of the Lord, knowing that he is with you at all times. If God has promised that he's with you, you better believe it. Once again, all his promises are yes and amen. And so no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're looking towards in terms of people that are in your life, know that the Lord is with you. Now notice what just happened in terms of what I just said, is even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, notice what just happened there. My response is one that was taught to me. And by whom the same person who is calling me, calling you to do what Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 says. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." It is God who's working in us. And that brings us to our final heading, though, God's reiteration of his means. We've been given a means of grace by which God is expecting us to utilize to accomplish his purpose. Joshua was being commissioned to a great work. He was providentially gifted and sovereignly prepared for that work. But in spite of all that, none of that would have caused him to experience success. What's going to cause him to experience success will be his adherence to God's word in every way, at all times. Three times he's told to be strong and courageous. Once, very courageous, but count them, at no time is he told to rely on his courage and strength. He's told to be courageous. He's told to be strong, but he's to rely on God's word. He's relying on God, and God's word is God speaking to us, you see. So instead of relying on his own strength, his own gifts, and yes, God is absolutely going to use those things. Yes, we are called to exert energy. Yes, we are called to, to press in into the things that God have us, and then to gauge their battle. Yes, we're supposed to do those things, but we are not left to our own ingenuity. We're not left to come up with how we feel as how we're going to go forward. We're not left to none of the, that That's not the way we are supposed to operate. We are to operate solely through God's word. And so here's the instruction he's given, verse 7 through 8. Only be strong and very courageous. And what's tied to that? Being careful. That is intentional. Be intentional in this area to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. That is volition, that you may have good success wherever you go. His success is contingent upon the degree of adherence to God's word. And I want to say this, you know, he is taught, in this text, you see that it, it sort of speaks or echoes the same thing that we see in Psalm 1, to meditate on the word of God. This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, right? So you have that same thing where you're supposed to be thinking of God's word in every single thing that you do, every step of the way, every engagement, no matter what you do, you're supposed to be Focused and gravitated toward embracing and looking to the Lord's word as a guide to your feet, a lamp onto your path, right? And so, Joshua, or rather when you go and you look for yourself at that particular passage, okay? And you say, hey, I'm not going to walk in the counseling ungodly. I'm not going to stand in the way of the sinner. I'm not going to sit in the seat of the scorner. But here is where my delight is going to be, right? And then it goes on to say that that person will prosper, okay? And when I look at that word prosper, and I just spoke to the the CCS Middle School about this. You know, you you have the prosperity gospel where some people say, oh, that means you're going to be prospering. You're going to have this and you're going to have that. Well, you know what? No. It's greater than that. Because in the midst of whatever you're doing, you will experience the presence of God, the peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding. And I gave them this particular story, and I need to hurry up and get out of here, I guess. But I talked about that story. You might have heard this about the the, the, the guy, the man who was called. God called him to remove a huge boulder from in front of the cave entrance. And God said, go and remove that, that, that boulder. And the man went to that boulder. And day after day, hour after hour, 24 hours a day, the man wasn't even sleeping until he had to sleep, right? The man trying to move this boulder, tons and tons. Turns out the man didn't even move the boulder even less than a piece of an inch. So at one point he got discouraged, okay? And so God came to him and God said, what's going on? You look like you're discouraged. So he turns to God and he says, God, you call me. You said that if I meditate on your word, if I focus on what you said, if I obey you at all time, right, you will cause me to be prosperous. But here it is that this thing that you've commanded me to move has not even moved one inch. So God said to the man, come here. And he walked him over to a mirror. And the man looked in the mirror and said, God said, what's going on? Do you notice anything about your shoulder? His shoulders were bigger. His biceps were bigger. His legs were bigger. He was stronger and even more prepared to do even greater work than anything else that he had done in his life. God had been working on him. He was being prospered even in the midst of what he thought was the thing that he was actually supposed to accomplish. So in any way, what I'm saying to you is when you operate in the word of God, you will be prosperous. It does not mean that you won't be beaten. Paul was. It does not mean that you won't be crucified. I mean, you won't uh, be martyred. Eleven of the apostles were. It does not mean that you won't suffer. But it does mean that in the midst of those things, you will stand like Stephen and be able to look into heaven and say, I see the Son standing, waiting for me. You'll be able to experience God, in a way that others who do not walk according to his word will. I need to shut this down, so let me just say this in the midst of whatever you might be dealing with. In the midst of your doubt, I say to you this day, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. The word of God. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you. Wherever you go. And if that is the case, Romans 8.31 greatly applies to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? And skipping forward, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let us go forward as ambassadors of Christ, fighting the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, in a way and in a manner that glorifies our God, knowing that he is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen? Let's pray. Our glorious Father, what a great word of encouragement to know that you, the God that created all things in this world. You are the one that set every principle in motion that is in motion. And you are the one that have us in the palm of your hand. You have called us to live in, by, and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've called us to glorify you in this world that you have stated we're in, but not of. And so as you have now put us out in our spheres of influence to be your ambassadors, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts in the way you just did with Joshua. That you would cause us to walk in the knowledge of your greatness and your goodness and your promises. And hence we will boldly, lovingly, reach all those whom you have bring across our path for your glory. That you would make us better soldiers in our homes in the way of loving our spouses. In the way of discipling our children. In the way of doing all the things that your word directs us to do. And why? Because we know that our labor in you is not in vain. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and thank you for the Comforter who is finishing the work that he started until the day of our Lord. Father, bless us now to do your will and your work. In Jesus' name, amen.